Once again, welcome here to Green Tree Community Church. My name is Corbett Heimberger. I am one of the pastors here, and it's my pleasure to talk to you about our continuing series on the weightier matters of the law, of mercy, justice, and faithfulness. Today, I want to talk about a passage that has grabbed my heart a number of years ago, and the best way I can do that is just to walk this through, tell part of my story, and what I found as I accepted this invitation, that we could find God in very surprising places. So it began for me about eight years ago. I was sitting in a cafe a lot like MacArthur's down in Birmingham and uh, taking a leisurely stroll through the book of Deuteronomy. And when I, yeah, (laughs) but you know what it really was? I found the joy of the Lord in that, especially in this passage, Uh, because in it, in chapter 10, God extended an invitation to me and to everyone. It caught my surprise as I went through that. And so what I'd like you to do is walk with me in this passage and hear if God might also extend that invitation to you. So let me ask you a question. What do you do when you want to get to know somebody really well, when you want to get close to them? It's really pretty simple. You listen and you observe and you find out what's important to them and make it important to you. That's the process of learning somebody's love language. Well, you know, for me, it took a while for me to get the love language of my wife, Carol. Uh, happened in not so subtle a way, frankly. Yeah, I, she, when we first met, she was living in a hundred-year-old house in Webster. And as I looked around at that house, if I was to be with her, I thought, oh my, there's a lot of stuff to do here. And I'm not handy. So I told her that. And she answered very succinctly, Oh, that will not fly. (laughs) (laughs) And so so I learned that her love language was fixing things around the house. It was service. And I got the opportunity to grow in my understanding of her because her, her desire and love is to make our home a comfortable, welcoming place. And so every time I spent on fixing things up, I was like whispering sweet nothings in her ear. So now 15 years later, I can't say I'm truly handy, but I've, I've made a little distance. But knowing that language has helped my relationship with you. God has love languages as well. He speaks very clearly about what delights him, what's most important to him in this passage, and I want you to hear it. So let's read from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 14 to 19. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you, Above all peoples, as you are this day, circumcise therefore this foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your, be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. 
He executes justice for the fatherless and widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Father, open our hearts to hear your heart. Enable us to see things as you do for this time and to learn to love you as you would delight to be loved. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our sermon in a sentence is this. When we are captured by what inflames God's heart, our hearts, our lives, and our culture will be transformed. And God starts it out by telling us who he is. To him belong heaven, the heaven of heavens, and earth and everything in it. And what does he do, this all-powerful God? He says, yet he set his heart in love on you. He made himself vulnerable. I don't know about you, but I found that love can be pretty vulnerable. You know, especially as a young boy, teenagers, thinking about wanting to ask a, a young lady out for a date. And I can remember the, the anxiety I felt and going through the different scenarios and how I would say it and picking up the phone and putting it down and picking up the phone and saying, um, but do you think, I don't, I don't think you really would like this, but would you, would you like to go out with me? And thankfully, at least one or two said yes. But here's God who says to the Israelites, he set his heart on them in love. I didn't know what the response of these girls would be when I called them up, but God knew exactly how the Israelites would respond when he offered his love to them. When they were in the desert around Mount Sinai, Moses had gone up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, and he was gone 40 days. And in that short time, the people said, where is Moses? Where is this God that that he's calling us out to serve? We want something better. We want something more tangible. And so they made a golden calf to worship and betrayed him. As they went along, they were kind of not so happy with the food selections that he gave them. And they were complaining about the, the manna and the quail daily arriving there miraculously. But what's most surprising is that they kept saying, let's go back to Egypt. We would rather be back in Egypt than here. What they were choosing was slavery over God's gracious daily provision for them in the desert. And so (laughs) you think, well, God's a big God. Does he hurt? Yeah. Yeah, the, the prophets talk about his saying, calling idolaters, adulterers, because he felt the same kind of betrayal for those who would walk away from him that way. But here's the encouragement. Here's the encouragement. God never stopped wooing the Israelites. He never gave up on them, nor will he give up on us. Have you heard God calling out to you before? If not, this is a chance. Listen to his call. So he made himself vulnerable by sharing his heart, setting his heart in love on us and telling it. He's asking us to do the same thing by letting down our defenses. Have you ever had a domestic, um, we'll call it discussion, between, your, between spouses or with you and your kids, and you, you get to a point where you've been talking and talking and talking, and you say, you think you want to say, maybe you don't say it, but you say, will you just stop? Will you just listen for a moment? I've got something important I want you to hear. Well, that's the same kind of thing that God is doing here in this passage. 
God wants us to cut away those things in our lives that hinder our relationship with God. He wants to cut away our hiding places. He wants us to cut away things that separate us from him. That's what he wanted for the Israelites, but you know the history of the Israelites. They didn't. In fact, they couldn't. And they ended up in exile. Well, what happened there? You know, one of the reasons why they went into exile is because they worshipped other gods, but um, Brian Fickert and Steve Corbett, good name, wrote a book, When Helping Hurts, and this is what they say. They quoted, first of all, from Isaiah chapter 1 that uh, Tom talked about last week. I have had enough of burnt offerings, God is saying. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the father, and plead the widow's case. So here's what Fickert and Corbett said. Here Israel appears to be characterized by personal piety and outward expression of formal religion, worshiping, offering sacrifices, celebrating religious holidays, fasting, and praying. Translate that into the modern era, and we might say these folks faithfully went to church every Sunday, attending midweek prayer meeting, going on the annual church retreat, singing contemporary praise songs, but God was disgusted with them going as far as to call them Sodom and Gomorrah. So why is God so displeased? They ask, both passages, that's Isaiah 58, which was read at the earlier part, both passages emphasize that God was furious over Israel's failure to care for the poor and oppressed. He wanted his people to loose the chains of justice and not just go to church on Sunday. He wanted his people to clothe the naked and not just attend midweek prayer meeting. He wanted people to spend themselves on behalf of the hungry and not just sing praise music. Personal piety and formal worship are essential to the Christian life, they say, but they must lead to lives that act justly and love mercy. So we know that what happened to the Israelites when they didn't do that? They were sent into exile. Well, what happened to the American church? History shows that we evangelicals have raised up barriers in our hearts against the poor. Before the beginning of the 20th century, in other words, 1900, there were 27 churches per 10,000 individuals in the United States. In 2004, there were 11 per 10,000. And in 2007, the national average of people going to church in evangelical churches on any Sunday morning was 17.5%. You see, at the turn of the century, the church was the primary vehicle through which mercy and justice was done, a poverty alleviation. That was the work of the church. But in about 1920 or so, there was a controversy over the fundamentals of the faith. Things like the Bible is inerrant and Jesus was born of a virgin. The resurrection was really a bodily election, or a resurrection rather. And so the fundamentalists thought as they watched the social gospel move people away from those tenets, they said, we need to back up and hold on to the truth of the scripture. And therefore, they distanced themselves from those who were broken in poverty. So, as the declining influence and lack of growth 
Four, are the American church specifically attributable to the evangelicals' lack of engagement with people who suffer from poverty and injustice? Well, we don't know that for sure. But we have all watched churches pull back from rougher areas of town, opting to move to safer, more affluent areas. And as a result, we have largely insulated ourselves from the places where the gospel is needed most. So, as a result, I believe our churches have become weaker, our influence is holding less and less sway, and we're even ridicule for who we are. So what do we do about that? Let's go back to the passage in verse 16, where God says, Circumcise your heart, therefore, and be no longer stubborn. But we can't do that. We cannot perform that, and neither could the Israelites. And God knew that. So in Deuteronomy chapter 30, he says to them this, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. We couldn't do that for himself, so God promises to do that. Well, how does he accomplish that? He accomplishes that through Christ. Paul in Colossians chapter 2 says this, In him you were also circumcised, that's in Christ, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. God performs that surgery on our heart, that transforming heart surgery through Jesus Christ. Instead of us being cut off, Christ was cut off and through his death on the cross. And as we believe in that, we receive the forgiveness of the sacrifice and God transforms our hearts. And so since that has happened, we are able then to listen to what God is calling us to do. And he's saying once again, will you listen? Will you just listen for a moment? And he says, let me tell you now. Let me take the next step forward. As we come and be vulnerable, what opens up is intimacy. Because as we give ourselves to one another, as we open up and trust one another, that builds more openness and trust. And that's what God wanted to start here. It's a dance of love. And he tells us what's really important to him. In verses 17 and 18 of chapter 10 of Deuteronomy, he says this, For the Lord is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. (laughs) Do you hear this? I love this about God. Here he is, all-powerful, everywhere. There is nothing greater than he is. He's greater than everybody. He is so awesome that the people, when they saw him for the very first time, almost fell apart. He has unassailable integrity. He gives food and shelter to the homeless. Isn't he the kind of guy that you'd want to be along with? Here's what he does. He's all-powerful. Yet, 
He supports the cause of the weak. He's the ultimate insider, (laughs) but he has compassion on the outsider. I love that. And God, isn't he the kind of person you just like to be with? And God is inviting us into the very core of who he is by this means. And we have an opportunity to catch that vision And our joy can be to join him in caring for those he loves so dearly. As he says in verse 19, Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You know what my heart desire was and is? To know God. And when he says to me, You can know me, by entering into the places where I want to go. You can know me by walking with me into the lives of those who are broken and needing, and needing help. He is the fatherless to the widow and the, and the displaced. And what God is saying is, if you will follow my heart into that place, you will experience me there in a way that you could not, in a Bible study or in any other way, right there in the midst of that brokenness to watch his work. God says, I love the sojourner. You were sojourners in Egypt, right? We were ourselves sojourners away from God, locked away from him, and impossible to get ourselves out of the brokenness and patterns of our sins and addictions. And he pulled us out. So he's saying, now you get to be a part of my rescue plan for other people. We find God in the most surprising places. In the streets with the homeless, in the homes of widows who cannot take care of their house but desperately need that help. We we find God in the jails and at safe houses where women and children who've been abandoned and abused can be safe. We find them in the homes of people who live in generational poverty and don't know how to get out. But you also know where we find him? Your neighbor, your coworker, in their brokenness. And he gives us an opportunity to be a part of that person's life as we reach out to them. Well, as, as God grabbed a hold of us and in our congregation, we began to do different things. And I have lots of stories to tell, but I want only to do two today. Um, we had a Jobs for Life program that was offered for people who were unemployed or underemployed. And we partnered with a halfway house of men who were coming out of prison. And so one of the participants in this particular class, his name was Corey. And he had just gotten out of jail about a week before class began. He was a drug dealer. He'd given up a very promising career to deal drugs and was caught. And his street name was Crown. He had a big crown tattooed on his arm. <laughs> this eight-week program, uh, I heard about oh, three, two, three weeks in, I heard Corey saying to someone around him, he says, it sure is good to be with good people. He'd not, he'd not experienced that before. And then a couple weeks later, as I sat down with him, we were talking and he said to me, I want to do Right. I want to do right. I said, what do you mean? 
He said, I want to do right by the law. I want to do right by the woman that I live with, who's the mother of my babies. I want to do right by God. God had grabbed his heart. I had the privilege of marrying him an angel. <laughs> and they are part of the congregation there in Birmingham, have been ever since. And Corey is a big guy with a big personality, as you might guess. And he has made such a difference in that congregation. In fact, his whole family, because Angel is a delightful person. The Spirit of God got a hold of him and turned his life around. And we who were with him got to be a part of that experience, to see God working in that beautiful and powerful way. The second man that I'd like to tell you about is Nick Taylor. He had also just gotten out of prison when we started this class. And he was painfully shy. He hardly ever looked up, would never look at somebody in the eye. And when he spoke, it was just in a little whisper. So as the class went on, we had an exercise that everyone was required to do. We called it a 60-second commercial. You were to write out something that you could tell to an employer if he asked this or that question. And as the few, as weeks went on, we saw Nick change. He began to stand up straight. He began to speak out. He began to, we could see his growing confidence and sense of dignity. We were excited for him. And then about week five, we got a call from the halfway house. Nick had died of a heroin overdose. It was like a gut punch for us. He had so much promise. Found out later that he had been raised in a snake handling church in southern Alabama. That his parents and all of his siblings had been in and out of jail. That two of his siblings had already died of overdoses. And as the men from the, the community there, Shepherd's Fold, went through his things, they found this poem that he had written in his things. And I'd like to read that for you. It's called Down Here on My Knees. I've been lost for so long. It seems like everything I do is wrong. Running from my guilt and shame, being caught up in this game. Another drug may ease my pain, but I'm looking for someone else to blame. Living life, running from regrets, no, Lord knows I'm not done yet. Will I ever find a way out? My mind is so full of doubt. There's got to be a better way out. Fall to my knees and call his name. So much time wasted. There's so much hate I tasted. God, please, I'm down here on my knees. So many hearts I've broken. There's so many lies I've spoken. God, please, you know, I'm down here on my knees. And so many times I've tried, but still there's so many questions why. And God, please, I'm down here on my knees. I'm praying, God, please, God, please have mercy on me because I'm down here on my knees. All the time I spent running. Well, Jesus Christ, he was gunning. He had my heart in his sight. He's going to win it if it takes all night. With my gas pedal to the floor, Jesus keeps knocking at my door. I said, thank you, God, for not giving up. You healed my heart and filled my cup. But sometimes it gets so hard. I'm standing here looking at the stars. 
So God, don't let this addiction kill me, but lift me up and then refill me. So why did I tell you his story? First of all, because I loved him. And his story needed to be told. But secondly, because through Nick's experience, we entered into God's anguish over the destruction and darkness of addiction to drugs. We began to understand at a gut level that we had never experienced before why Jesus had to come because of this kind of brokenness, because our brokenness is just the same as that. We just are not as expressive about it, but Nick was there. The only way that God could reverse this kind of horror was to enter into it. And God did by coming in the person of Jesus Christ. But so much did he that he allowed this darkness to destroy him. It took him into the cross and into death. But as he rose again, he broke all those bands of evil and darkness, oppression, addiction, whatever. He broke through that and gave life to all who believe. So as we were hurting so much for Nick, we also were rejoicing because we knew God answered his prayer. How do I know that? God says that he who calls on my name, on the name of Jesus Christ, will be saved. Nick called and God saved. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Mother Teresa summed up this passage in my sermon in a very short sentence. She was being interviewed by a reporter, and he commented to her how much compassion, passion she had for the poor. And this was her answer. I have no passion for the poor. (laughs) That's surprising coming from Mother Teresa, right? But she says, I have no passion for the poor. My passion is for Jesus. He has a passion for the poor. So I serve the poor. Do you hear God's call to enter into who he is in those places? Let's pray. God, our Father, thank you that you entered into our brokenness, all of our brokenness, Nick and many of those who suffer from addictions. And you redeemed us. I thank you, God, for that grace that comes in spite of us because you love us. And I pray now that those of us who have heard your call and and been turned back to you, that you might open doors of opportunity so that we can experience the joy of your work in the lives who are broken just as we are. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.